what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. Professor Saiful Islam is a chemist and fellow of material science at St Anne's College at the University of Oxford. His research uses advanced computer modelling techniques to gain atomic scale insights into new materials for clean energy applications. In 2013, he was the recipient of the Royal Society Wolfson Research Merit Award, and in 2016, he delivered the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures. Most importantly, he's a patron of Humanists UK. Saiful, thank you for joining us on What I Believe. Well, thank you for asking me on. You're the first chemist on the podcast, so I thought we might start there. What was it exactly that inspired you into chemistry? Well, I feel very honoured that I'm the first chemist. Yes, on. you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, what inspired me into chemistry? Well, going back to my school days, I really enjoyed science. I can't say I was passionate about science or had an inspirational teacher. Uh, I didn't have a chemistry kit at home, for example, but I really enjoyed chemistry and was good at it, uh, and then decided to do that as a degree at uh, UCL, University College London. I have to say, um, having first-generation um, Asian immigrant parents, you can imagine that the, the push they were trying to get me into was being a, a medical doctor. But I resisted, and uh, I think I'd have been a terrible doctor, and, uh, and I went into chemistry. Uh, uh, although I do remind them when they were alive uh, that I did marry a doctor in the end. Oh, well, that's even better in a way. But it can't just have been that you were good at it and so you pursued that. There must have been something in it that drew you some, uh, you know, some attraction to it. What did it, what was it about for you? Uh, I think, well, at degree level, um, I developed a greater interest. Um, I think school days, I think we're all like this, that we go through school days um, enjoying certain subjects more than others. But at degree level, and then really at PhD level, postgraduate level, I got a real passion for certain aspects of chemistry. And the area that I got passionate about was an area called solid state chemistry or um, materials chemistry, and particularly materials for energy applications. Uh, this was in the 1980s soon after the oil crisis, but uh, um, so energy materials like superconductors, um, anything with the word super in it always sounds kind of exciting. <laughs> um, and so I, I got really interested in the chemistry of um, energy materials. And it sounds like that was partly because you were interested in the practical applications. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think, I think I can see where the technology was going, mm. but uh, uh, what drew me into some of those materials, but they were very crystalline, so they had this kind of crystalline beauty, very regular crystal structures. And also, I began to get involved with a growing area of chemistry, which was computational chemistry, computer modeling. And computer modeling allowed us to look at these beautiful crystalline solids 
at the atomic level. So we were like virtual microscopes. So that was another exciting growth area of chemistry that I got involved with during my PhD at UCL. When you spoke um, at the Humanist UK conference and you were talking about your research, you did very much focus on the uh, on some of the practical applications in relation to green energy. Yeah. Is that something that you were taken into sort of this this area of work you were taken into purely as it were intellectually or is it something that you know is a is a personal value for you the whole uh, field of um uh green energy and environmentalism oh that's a good that's a good question andrew um i think a mixture of the two definitely i have had um since my youth an abiding interest and fascination with green energy um i, I would say politically i am a, a progressive and wanted to see advances in green technology and then um on the intellectual level there's there's an understanding or, or, or that that if we want to have breakthroughs in these green energy technologies that we do need new materials so new materials chemistry but also we need a greater understanding of these complex materials so that was that intellectual side that mm. really gaining greater knowledge about these materials could actually help their advance uh, so that was um, a, a nice intellectual aspect of my research and I mentioned computer modeling I'm one of those um, chemists that doesn't wear a white lab coat mm. uh, you know I just get uh, myself and the group to use these powerful supercomputers uh, and we don't get anywhere near any test tubes uh, uh, so but the practical applications are, are twofold lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles um, they've obviously revolutionized portable electronics mm. and my other research area which is very practical is to do with um, solar cells solar power and looking at new materials that would go into those solar cells. So on balance, do you think it, it, it has been the, or the academic intellectual interest that has motivated most of your work, or are you uh, um, politically motivated too in what you do? Or is it just a bit of both and they influence each other? Uh, yeah, I think the, the, they influence each other. Yeah, they do. Um, I think as a scientist, and especially a, a university academic scientist, it is that um, intellectual challenge of research, just trying to um, make breakthroughs in understanding and in new materials that drives me. I, mean, I really, it's so the, I mean, in a way, that's been my research philosophy has been around greater understanding and new materials. So that has been a drive. But with any, I have to say, to justify your your research, there's no harm in putting the applications um, aspect added on because that's how you get your your grants funded but <laughs> I, I am fortunate that it it does link up with my um, my political interests as well it happens to link up with them I've noticed yeah. a lot of talking to a lot of scientists that they they can be and you're being this way to some extent as well can be a little bit diffident about the sort of political or values aspect to their work um, you're not shy of it are you it's not that you uh think that scientists shouldn't have been informed by these sorts of values no not no, at all no. uh, i think um um 
I suppose I'm, I'm a progressive that would happily say that there has been progress. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean by that? I suppose if you look at the 20th century and the advances on dealing with, uh, say, poverty, disease, health and uh, clean energy, a lot of the progress has come from scientific advances. Obviously, there has been some use of science that has been very detrimental, like nuclear weapons. But I was, I would say, on the whole, the, the great progress that we made in the 20, 20th century, and now into the 21st, ha, you know, has been led by some of the scientific advances. And do you think those two things follow? Um, I mean, I was, it was interesting hearing Stephen Pinker a couple of days ago, he was giving a talk about rationality for Humanist International. And he actually said that the scientific enterprise um, and the application of reason and a commitment to rationality actually carried you, he thought, carried you almost inevitably, not inevitably, that would be to mischaracterise him, but he thought um, often uh, carried you in a progressive direction. Yes. Yeah, I mean... You think that? You agree with that? I would agree with that. And um, Stephen Pinker's book, The Enlightenment Now, Mm. um, um, I think is an an excellent kind of... um, uh, I suppose description of his philosophy around uh, progress, uh, science, and humanism, and mm. I would agree with his thoughts on that. Yes, mm. you weren't always a humanist. You weren't raised in a uh, a humanist family. Um, the other part of your talk at the Human UK conference, I remember very well. Half of your talk really was about uh, your. Um, scientific work and, and uh, materials that we've that, that we've touched on, but the other half is about your own personal experience um, growing up uh, in a Muslim family uh, in London. I think you were born in Pakistan, is that right? But you came came, right. came to Britain very 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 early on, um, and so I thought we might talk a, a little bit about that because I think that as well as being the first chemist, you're one of the very very few former Muslims that we've had on the podcast as well. And because we've had Jim, of course, but Jim always says he wasn't ever really a Muslim because he never believed anything, wasn't raised, you know, in any sort of religious way. Yeah. Um, but but your story is a little bit uh, more interesting than that, isn't it? Yeah, I enjoyed that part of the lecture because only because it's very rare in a conference, scientific conference, or actually um, not at all, that you start, you talk about yourself. Mm. And so it was, it was nice to prepare a bit about my upbringing and my parents. So uh, my parents are originally from Bangladesh, and uh, I was born in Karachi, Pakistan. We came to London when I was only one years old. Uh, my dad worked for the Pakistan High Commission, and then after there was civil war, and then he moved over to the British Civil Service. But my mum was religious, but I, she didn't. I don't think she was very forceful. My dad. Um, however, was knowledgeable about Islam, but I would say was more agnostic. Uh, um, so, so I would say that I may have had of that Bengali community slightly unusual in the sense that um, I can sense that other other parents were much more religious and much more forceful in having their children grow up in a strongly islamic household right whereas you felt you had a bit of leeway there yeah i i didn't realize at the time but i think i i did 
I mean, mm. I suppose you don't have that self-awareness. What I do recall is that I never, I never had a strong faith. I don't remember ever having a strong faith. And I'd ask my mum, you know, about uh, God or Allah, and because I didn't feel as if I, you know, I had any connection. And as with many people, I think I was an atheist or humanist before I even knew what the term meant in my, my late in my late teens. I remember definitely at school when I became more interested in science and chemistry, I couldn't understand or see how f following some supernatural deity added anything to my understanding of the world around me. Um, I mean, at school and watching Attenborough and Carl Sagan on TV, we're encouraged to think about uh, science and evidence and understanding the world through um, rational investigation. I just couldn't see how a supernatural deity added that understanding. So it was very definitely science that helped draw you away from any possibility of, of, of religious belief. Yeah, I, th I think so. I, I was always questioning and maybe, which is part of the scientific method, if you if if say, you, yeah. I was always questioning. Um, I think I gave my mum some very awkward questions about <laughs> the usual ones. You know, what did, what did God look like? Just basic teenage type questions and i and i just found found science actually a lot more beautiful as well uh and i felt a bit more optimistic about the world around me through science yeah I, you know without being critical of religion I, it just didn't to me didn't add any additional knowledge about the world i think did you feel that you gained anything from from having a, a religious culture in your home, at least in relation to, to your mother, if, if if not completely with your father? Were there any enduring things that it did for your outlook on things? I think, um, and I'm sure many of us would say that, there are elements of all religions that, you know, humanists obviously wouldn't disagree with. You know, if, if we think that a lot of religions are, you know, human made in a way yeah all of the them. writings then there's going to be we could easily all cherry pick bits of the quran the bible and others that you know as as a, as a humanist i would i wouldn't disagree with and so talking to my mum and i and I, I love them dearly and there were elements that i you know i was happy to discuss with her in terms of um outlook uh how to treat you know other you know, fellow humans as well, you know, in terms of kindness. Um, uh, you know, it, it, she would stress the peaceful nature. Um, you know, I would argue with on the you know, <laughs> some aspects <laughs> that weren't so peaceful uh, within the Quran. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, there were aspects that I, I think I could I could relate to, but I, I, I didn't have the, um, the belief in a, in a supernatural being. So where do you think those values came from for you? That's a good question. And um, I would say that a lot of the politics, the progressive politics, I got active in in the late, uh, my late teens and at university was about social justice. Mm. Uh, you could see the inequalities in the world and the degree of um, poverty and the values of treating all of us equally, you know, treating your fellow humans equally, the kindness that we would like, the kindness that you would like to be treated 
yourself, you'd think that you would like to treat other people in the same way. I was maybe with hindsight, I was influenced quite a bit about with my one of my school books in English literature. Still one of my favourite books. I had to kill a mockingbird oh, by Harper Lee. And I love the character of the father, Atticus. And he always talked about trying to see the other person's point of view by stepping into their shoes. And Atticus, I would say, was a humanist. You know, he, he did see everybody equally, you know, in a, in a very kind of racist environment in that, in that mm. town of, of his. And he tried to impart those lovely values to his two children. Yeah, so aspects of politics, aspects of some of the literature I was reading at the time, uh, kind of informed my kind of outlook. I think that's interesting. There's a, it's definitely the case, isn't it, that so many of our values come to us from um, the examples in fiction. You know, children's books are always full of it, but it says every novel or film is full of moral examples, good and bad. And I think a lot of us take more values than we think from those sorts of places. So it's interesting that you consciously now realize that 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 were you aware of that at the time did you think at the time gosh she's a this is a sort of person i'd like to be like or or is it sort of in retrospect that you see this as coming from those sources definitely at the time i remember oh i could i really can relate to this right. character and um you know the the fact that he was standing up for um Tob robinson the the, the falsely accused black man mm-hmm. and you know that that sense of social justice and um did appeal to me. So I think at that time it did really resonate with me. And then, um, strangely enough, one of my favourite actors um, is Gregory Peck. And he, <laughs> I couldn't think of a better person to play that role in the film version of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, I think he got an Oscar for it as well. So, yeah, it's a, a lovely book and a, a lovely film. Was the racist element um, resonant person if you yeah, experienced it? Yeah, I think I think so, yeah. I mean, it, uh, looking back at the when I read that book, it was the late seventies and the late seventies was the height of some of the um, racist attacks by skinheads, the kind of packy bashing. Mm-hmm. And like others, I was a victim of that. And uh, it, uh, which I again mentioned in that humanist lecture. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, re- that kind of overt and covert racism uh, was around in the late seventies, very much so. Mm. And has that had a, an effect? Those experiences, or that um, that those early experiences, on you in any way, politically or morally? You're anti-racist, obviously. Yes, oh, oh, I think it it can't it can't but not affect you. Uh, that um, a lot of that a lot of that racism is from ignorance and fear. So again, I think a, a kind of a good humanist type ideals is to try and overcome that ignorance Mm. and deal with that fear because i'm sure once people begin to understand other human beings as humans that you realize that you have so much in common rather than just the color of your skin uh so yeah i'm sure those kind of humanist um humanist views i have are influenced by the racism that i experienced as a late teenager. And you've done work to advance um, diversity and inclusion, I suppose, in, in, in scientific circles, for example, in the Royal Society. 
Yeah, so um, uh, I was, there's a, um, a committee within the Royal Society called the Diversity Committee, uh, which is a really good committee in terms of collecting evidence and data, because if you can't really try to change policy or attitudes without having the, the evidence behind it. I've also been involved with, as with many scientists, outreach work and and talks just to just to show that there are alternative views and faces of of yes. a scientist out there. And I, I love giving those schools talks. And I use one of my little um, novelties is that I, I talked about these crystalline structures these crystalline materials i use 3d specs 3d glasses that was a great bit yeah and uh, i really enjoyed using those because again it kind of it shows up the the beauty of those crystalline materials but on on the diversity inclusion side yes very very active and trying to get as many people from different underrepresented groups into um into the joys into the joys of science and what motivates that for you? It's not just the promotion of science generally, of course, because you could do that anyway. It's obviously you, you, you want, you, you want people from all different backgrounds. You think that currently they're underrepresented. You have a personal commitment to that. Yes, I mean, I, I, I was very fortunate that I went to a not fantastic school, but a school that uh, that helped me uh, fulfil my potential and get to do a degree. And you want as many people to fulfil their potential and. I suppose my philosophy would be, can we try and get as many of those underrepresented groups into whatever they're passionate about, whether it's science, arts, to to, um, to a higher level? It sounds like your parents valued education. Yes, I, I think a lot of, I, I, I don't want to generalise, but there's an aspect of some of the, the Asian community that really one way out of poverty was through mm through education and not surprisingly that's why that's why they always talk about um, vocational professions like being a doctor or being a lawyer right it's a very obvious educated position with esteem exactly and status so you you get out of there and then why not be a doctor And they were their, they were their aspirations for you of course as well and presumably um, you've you've got some of those values yourself yeah um, yeah I, I I suppose you asked earlier about the intellectual side. Mm. I I value education on the, on that level as well. So I wouldn't just promote science. I, I think literary and artistic education are also crucial. Um, indeed, I would say that science and art often share a similar spirit of wonder. I would say it, it's important that a true education system is inclusive of children of, of all backgrounds. When you say spirit of wonder, do you mean like the contemplation of science and the contemplation of art is is motivated by wonder? Or do you mean that the creation of art and the pursuit of science is motivated by wonder? Is it sort of as an audience or as a as a as a doer that 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 wonder comes into it? So, yeah, the wonder in science can be from just the creativity of thinking some new ideas or new avenues, but also the wonder of some fantastic new results because sometimes you are discovering something about a material that no one else has discovered and that is quite wonderful really so yeah uh, kind of both aspects the creativity and the the discovery you you did talk uh, uh, we talked a a moment ago and and like I say you talked uh, 
before at the Human UK conference um, about growing up in a Muslim family and about the your changing beliefs and the uh, and the way also in which I think you were saying you felt your family might, even though um, religious in one sense, have been a little bit different from others in that there was a, there was space for um, discussion, uh, for doubt, um, not least in your father. Um, I wondered if um, any part of your identity was still uh, Bangladeshi in any way, because I think we've both experienced it. It's really striking to me um, the number of Bangladeshis that are involved in Humanist UK, even though yeah. as, a, as a like as a as a population in the UK it's quite small, but it 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 definitely accounts for a significant proportion of our members and people who are actively involved. Is there something culturally in 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 that um, sort of national background? I mean, the Bangladeshi humanists right now, even in Bangladesh, of course, very, very active, very, uh, unfortunately, very persecuted, as we know. Yes. Um, but uh, do you feel an affinity still with with that culture? Um, yes. I mean, the, the, it's part of my you know identity and um, I talked, I've got two younger sisters, they're both, one lives in London, one lives near Cambridge. Yes, I mean, in terms of cultural events, it's really nice to get together for weddings and family events in the Bengali community in North London, where I grew up. I grew up in a place called Crouch End, which has now become quite trendy. Very posh. Very <laughs> posh, it's now called Crouchond. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> so I... I, yes, so there is a sort of an identity. Strange enough, for many, many years, and it could be a part of kind of part of religion is feeling a bit guilty. I didn't eat bacon, you know, because I didn't grow up eating bacon right. or pork. Then I thought, well, actually, I'm not Muslim. I'm not that religious, and and I, and I drink alcohol. So why am I drinking alcohol and um, perhaps kind of resisting bacon? So I thought I'd give it a go so uh yeah and actually <laughs> did you enjoy it <laughs> a, i have to say a, a good bacon sarnie is quite nice there you go you see there's a great bit in alam shah's young atheist handbook when he talks about the first bacon sandwich he had after he stopped being a muslim i think he's it's uh, it's probably one of the nicest bit of food writing since uh well since proust <laughs> but my experience of my experience of going to Bangladesh after my dad died in 1993 was that it was quite secular. You didn't see, uh, and I haven't been back recently, but you didn't see uh, women walking around with headscarves. Uh, everyone, even although uh, you know that I shouldn't view that as just just uh, it's just a symbol, but you know you didn't see that it was quite on since it wasn't quite visible. Uh, and talking to family members. And they discovered that I wasn't particularly religious. It didn't fill them with any horror. Uh, mm. You know, they all oh, well. That's that's interesting. It's probably because probably part of the family weren't that religious themselves either, so they could probably relate to it. On terms of my own upbringing, as we all know, Andrew, if you ask people why they why they're of a particular faith, ninety nine times out of a hundred, it's because their parents are of that faith. Yeah, and. And I've just said to you that my father wasn't that religious. In fact, my, my father was really influenced by the politics of partition. And he saw the real, the downside of 
that partition, you know, mm. the number of deaths between Hindus and Muslims. Mm. Um, and so I think that influenced him a lot. And I could see that seeping into my views as well. So maybe that was a, a big aspect that I, I that dad influenced me more than my mum mm. in that respect. Beautiful crystals, green energy, scientific progress, combating ignorance and fear and the value of education. Saiful Islam, thank you for telling us what you believe. Well, thank you for having me on, Andrew. Thank you. That was Saiful Islam telling us about his life and his outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is a weekly podcast from Humanist UK, and this was the seventh episode of the fourth season. We'll be releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast, find out more about Humanism, Humanist UK, or the work that we do, you can find out more on the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk. And if you like what you see, please consider joining up as a supporter or a member. You can also find out more about Humanism by purchasing the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, available online and at all good bookshops. <laughs> <laughs>